have good news. He is risen. He is risen. Absolutely. The thing is, the fact that he's risen, that changes everything. It changes our whole life. I've been studying this week, and I've been at this for a while. I've done a few Easter sermons. And this week has been so good, so rich for me, studying God's word. And I have to say, I've been uh, a bit influenced by Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. You saw the, the trailer for the movie during the announcements. Uh, and it kind of got me thinking, kind of inspired me to this approach to uh, the sermon this morning. You see, this morning, we are at the heart of the Christian faith. We are at the epicenter. This is where Christianity, this moment, the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, this is the moment when Christianity moves from uh, a wonderful idea and some really great teachings to a reality that changed the world, to a reality that has changed our lives. So the thing is, uh, I didn't always believe that. It's contrary to popular belief. Uh, I was not born a pastor. <laughs> In fact, when I was young, I was probably the farthest thing from it. Uh, I remember going to church a few times with my aunt, uh, probably four or five years old. I can remember going to small town church. Um, but growing up, my family never went to church. Uh, a few times. I remember going a couple times at Easter. Uh, we never went at Christmas Eve because we were too busy doing our family gifts and stuff then. Um, I didn't grow up going to church. My family didn't go to church. But I have to say, I was always drawn to Jesus. Uh, even when I was young, I remember riding on the bus and talking to God, to, our, to God our Father in heaven. But, like a lot of people, uh, as I grew up in high school and in college, um, I had way more questions than answers. I was uh, agnostic. I wasn't sure what. I, I wanted to believe scriptures, the Bible I read, and the, but the things didn't line up with what I was being taught in school. So it was difficult for me. And I'm an analytical person. Uh, my wife can, <laughs> I can just see her face right now. <laughs> I'm an analytical person. Uh, reason, proof, logic, these things this kind of makes sense to me. They seem like good things. And like a lot of people in my generation, I'm skeptical. You know, I think if, you know, if they say like four out of five dentists recommend you should chew gum after eating, I wonder what the fifth dentist knows and what he's not telling us, so I spit mine out. <laughs> a lot of us, we question institutions, and the church is one of the oldest. But that said, the more I follow Jesus, the more I'm convinced. The more I'm convinced that he really is who he said he was. He really is who the early church, those first believers, believed he is. The more I follow him, the more I realize that he's not some myth. He wasn't made up. The more I follow him, the more I realize that he wasn't just some amazing first century rabbi whose followers got a little carried away. The more I follow him, the more I believe that he really did die and he really did rise again. And he's changed everything. And I know we all come with different ideas about the resurrection. 
different things, different uh, backgrounds. Some of you, you've been Christians longer than I've been alive. And the fact that Jesus died and rose again is a fixture of your faith. It's part of the foundation. Bless you. Give thanks to God for that. But I want to encourage you this morning. Because I know you've heard this story a lot. Actually, uh, Dave and I were talking about it just before the um, service this morning. If you've been a Christian for a while, like decades, you've heard this story before, that Jesus died and rose again. It can be easy to take it for granted. I want to encourage you to listen this morning, though. To listen to the scriptures, listen to the direction of the sermon, because I guarantee you will be encouraged not only that, you will hear something that will help you to encourage others who maybe have a lot more questions than you do. I also know that some of you are here this morning and you're new to faith. Colleen has been following for almost a year now. That's awesome. And you're convinced, as you heard her testimony, she's convinced God has healed her. But she's still gathering more information because she still has questions to fill in, to back up this faith that she has. Some people find Jesus uh, in a moment when they are healed. Some people realize that Jesus is their Savior when they come to the end of their rope and he is the one who is there. But are still looking for help. And I want to encourage you, this morning will help you. This morning will help you to realize uh, that you might still have more questions than answers, that's okay. But also to encourage you that you're not crazy for believing in Jesus. Despite what our world might say, you're not crazy for believing that Jesus actually died and rose again. I also know that some of you might be here this morning and you are barely hanging on. Truth be told, you're just about done with this whole faith thing. You're not sure if it really makes sense for you anymore. You want something tangible that you can hold on to, something that's bigger than how you feel. Because right now, you're not really feeling it. Right now, if it was based on your experience, you would say, I don't know how I experience Jesus at all right now. You can remember what it was like when you first came to faith, how amazing it was and how excited you were about it, and those years are a long time ago. Somehow, normal life has pushed your faith, has crowded your faith into a small corner of your life somewhere. And you find yourself just living daily, normal life, not really sure how your faith fits in anywhere. I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you. We're going to be talking about how Jesus died and rose again. Tangibly. Not just based on experience, but on the testimony of the gospel writers, especially of Matthew. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with faith, if that's where you're at, then this is the place to be. I also know that some of you are here this morning and you have questions. You're not really sure what to believe. You have way more questions than answers. And you've heard about Jesus maybe when you were younger, growing up, And you're not sure if maybe is it just kind of the stories that parents tell their kids, kind of like Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. You're not sure what you believe. Maybe you're asking yourself, maybe you've wrestled with the question, is it even possible that Jesus could actually die and rise again? Is it true? Is it real? Can I bet my life on this, really? 
but yet you're still drawn. You're still here at this moment, intrigued by Jesus, who he is, and the story of his life, the story of his death, the story of his resurrection. Just know that we were meant for more. You can't shake this feeling that we were meant for more. I want to encourage you this morning, you too are in the right place. See, the thing is, we are all essentially asking this question, whether you've been following Jesus for decades or if you're still not sure what you believe. We are all asking this essential question, did Jesus really die and rise again? And if he did, can I bet my life on it? And if I do, what's going to happen next? So, the good news is, we are not the first generation to deal with this question. We are not the first generation to ask this question. The New Testament was written to answer this question. For those of you who are familiar, there's uh, writers who wrote about the life of Jesus. And their names are Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. They wrote these books, a part of the Bible we call the Gospels. They wrote these stories specifically so that we would know who Jesus is, so that we would know that he actually did die and rise again, and that we would know how that changes our life. Okay, so we're going to zoom in on Matthew this morning, one of those writers who wrote about the life of Jesus. The trouble is we're starting at chapter 28, which is literally the last chapter of Matthew's book. If this were a movie, this would be the end scene. So let me catch you up on where we're at. So Jesus uh, comes into this world, comes into this world, and he shows people what the kingdom of God is like through miracles, through healing people, and through teaching. Well, he runs up against the current religious system of the day, Judaism, and the Jewish, leader, or the Jewish religious leaders, they're furious with him. So they have him arrested. When they arrest him, they hand him over to Pilate who was the Roman governor. He was like the overseer of that particular area because they wanted Jesus killed. They wanted him out of the way. And so they insisted that Pilate execute him. Well, in that time, Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, their preferred way of executing people was crucifixion, hanging them on a cross until they died. And that's what they did to Jesus. They hung him on a cross until he died. And then they buried him in a tomb. And that is where everybody thought the story ends. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Or it's also here in your bulletin, if that's easier for you. First page. Listen to the story again. <clears throat> so, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary, sorry, and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into, the, into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, 
afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards, these are the guards who were guarding the tomb, went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If, the, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. So, Ultimately, believing that Jesus died and rose again is a matter of faith. I say that because there is no uh, video footage. There was no video surveillance camera on Jesus at the cross that followed him to the tomb and recorded all of it. So in that sense, it is a thing that we take by faith. And I have to say, too, it is the quintessential issue of faith. It's a thing that everything else hangs on. Even Paul, an early uh, church planter and pastor who's famous for writing most of the New Testament, he said this in his letter to the church in Corinth. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It's a pretty stark contrast. If Jesus is not risen, then we're wasting our time. Then he went on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If Jesus did not really rise, then for the last 2,000 years, the church has been wasting its time and everyone else's. Paul even goes on to say, if, if the resurrection isn't real, then we've wasted our lives and we should be pitied above all people. But here's the thing. Faith, excuse me, uh, belief in Jesus, believing that he uh, died and rose again, it is a matter of faith. But I want to show you this morning that it is not a matter of blind faith. That to become a follower of Jesus does not mean that you have to check your brain at the door. That some of the most brilliant minds in human history were devout followers of Jesus. So, let's dig into this. Let's see what we have. I want to show you what I've been reflecting and thinking on and discovered this week. All right, so first... The women. The women come to the tomb. Now in Matthew and in Matthew's gospel, it just says the women came to the tomb. In Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, it said that they brought spices to anoint the body, to anoint Jesus' body. See, this is the last rite in Jewish custom. At the time, what they would do is they'd bring spices and oils and they would uh, put them on the body. Part of it was to combat the smell but mainly it was a way to honor someone that you loved. See, they came to the tomb expecting that Jesus was really dead. 
They weren't coming to celebrate. They didn't bring a band with them. They brought spices because they were planning to bury him. They expect Jesus is dead. And we have to say this because there have been different theories throughout time, throughout the history of the church, where people have said that, you know, Jesus didn't really die and rise again because that doesn't naturally happen. One of the theories, it's called the swoon theory, or the fact that the idea that Jesus merely passed out from the pain or the blood loss and then later came to in the tomb. Well, here's the thing. In his book, Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, an investigative journalist, goes and meets with different people uh, qualified to speak about Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of the people he meets with is Dr. Alexander Methrow. So Dr. Alexander Methrow, he is a, he's a medical doctor at the University of Miami. He also uh, has a doctorate in engineering from the University of Bristol in England. Uh, this guy has written numerous articles published in, in uh, medical journals on national boards the guy is qualified to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. So he says this. He says, first of all, Jesus had to have died because he wasn't just hung on a cross. Actually, it began first with his torture. After Jesus was handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, they took him away, sent him to the soldiers, and the soldiers tortured him. So they whipped him with a device called the cat of nine tails. looks something like this. So it was a whip. And the whip, you can see here that it had steel or metal balls in it, as well as sharp fragments of bone or steel. And in this case, in this picture, they're actually uh, claws. So the, the metal balls, they would hit your flesh, and they would cause bruising. It would soften the skin, and the blood would come to the surface. And then the sharp uh, fragments of bone or metal would dig into the skin, and when it was pulled away, they would pull away flesh. Sorry, I know it's gruesome, but it's the truth. This thing was designed to cause the massive, the most amount of damage possible. There were historical accounts that it would leave, it would expose uh, the body. You would pull away the skin and you would see muscle, sinew. Sometimes people's backbone would be exposed or ribs. Sometimes it said that even internal organs like intestines or kidneys were exposed from the flesh that was torn away. But here's the thing. Not only is this extremely excruciating and painful, but also that you begin to lose blood, obviously. And many victims begin to go into hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning loss or low volume, meaning is blood. Basically, low blood volume. And your body begins to compensate. One of the ways your body compensates is by increasing the heart rate. So your heart beats faster. And the other parts, the other internal organs begin to shut down to conserve energy, to conserve fluid, like your kidneys stop working so that you don't uh, use fluid in anything but for blood. The thing is, some people didn't even survive this. They didn't survive the torture. They didn't even make it to the crucifixion part because they died during the torture. So Jesus underwent this before he was crucified. Then the Roman soldiers, they forced him to carry his cross to the place called the skull, Golgotha, or we call it in uh, English sometimes Calvary. And there they nailed him to the cross. The thing is, words don't do justice to crucifixion. 
just a few minutes ago, I talked about how excruciating it was. Excruciating is actually Latin for excruci, out of the cross. The word, the dying on a cross was so painful that it actually created its own vocabulary that we use still today that is excruciating. So, <clears throat> first of all, Jesus uh, was nailed to the cross. And what they would do is they would take about a seven-inch nail and they would put it through your wrist. I know in many pictures we see the hole in the hand. Uh, scholars think it was probably the wrist because in ancient times that was part of the hand as well, considered part of the hand. But also because if you're hanging from the cross, if, it, if the nail was between your bones, it would pull through the tissue from the weight of your body hanging on it. So they think that Jesus was actually probably crucified through the bones right here in your wrist, this complex of bones. So they would drive the nail through his bones into the cross. You can imagine how painful that would be. But here's the thing. Your medial nerve runs right through here, right through the middle of your wrist. That's the nerve, the bundle of nerves that goes to your fingers. And your hand is one of the most sensitive areas of your body. So they're driving this six-inch long nail through your nerves. Now, hopefully none of us know what that's like. But I can imagine it being something like grabbing onto a high-powered electrical wire at the same time someone had a blowtorch on your hand. And so they nailed him to the cross. Okay. So, when he's nailed to the cross, if his shoulder isn't already pulled out of uh, its socket to stretch him out on the cross, when Jesus begins to hang on the cross, the sheer weight of his body begins to pull, and the only thing that holds your shoulder in its socket is a series of muscles. And so as you hang there, the weight of your body pulling down on your shoulder, your shoulders come out of joint. Okay? The next thing is to put you on a cross. They actually nail your feet to the cross as well. Again, going through bone and through nerve to nail you to a cross. So the thing is, people, uh, they don't die from hanging on a cross. As painful as it is, you don't die from hanging on a cross. You actually die from asphyxiation because it is nearly impossible to breathe on a cross. So in order to breathe, because when you're like this, and I don't know if you've ever hung, <laughs> I tried it this week uh, when I was at the gym, tried hanging by a bar and breathing. It is difficult because you're held in the inhale position. So you can breathe air in, but you can't breathe it out. Your diaphragm can't move to, to blow it out. And so in order to breathe, Jesus on the cross, if he was hanging low, in order to breathe, he would have to push on the nail in his feet, push up, sliding his back along his torn open back, along the vertical uh, upright of the cross, sliding that up the cross to exhale and then lower himself back down to inhale. Exhale, inhale. 15 to 20 times a minute. That's if his respiratory rate is the normal rate. And so you can imagine, as he begins to wear down from the loss of blood, from the shock, from the sheer exhaustion, it becomes hard to breathe. Jesus is suffocating on the cross. As you begin to suffocate, as you are unable to take in oxygen, your body goes through this process called acidosis, 
which essentially your body begins, your cells begin to build up carbonic acid and begins to affect all sorts of parts of your body, organs. One of the key organs is your heart. Your heart begins to beat irregularly because of the buildup of this acid. Dr. Meth Rowland is in the book, uh, Case for Christ. He said, Jesus most likely felt his death coming. He could feel his heart giving out. So Jesus dies on the cross, and that's why he says that when Jesus says, Lord, at his last breath, he gives out his, uh, he exhales, and he says, Lord, to you I commit my spirit. And with that, he breathes his last. That's how he could know. So, and then the guards come. The religious leaders told the, the Roman guards, make sure that these, there was actually two other men who were crucified with Jesus. Make sure all three of them die before the end of the day because this is a religious festival and it's not good to have people dying on crosses during a religious festival. So they came and they broke the legs of the other two guards so that they couldn't breathe anymore. If your legs are broken, you can't stand to breathe, so they die faster. But they didn't break Jesus' leg, not only to fulfill prophecy, which is, if you want to ask me more about that, you can. They didn't break his legs. They could see that he was already dead. But just to confirm it, they put a spear, most likely through his right side, through his right lung, and pierced his heart, just to make sure that he was dead. Now, Dr. Methrell, in his, in his uh, account, his um, talk with Lee Strobel, says, you know, these Roman soldiers aren't trained doctors. I totally, he says, I totally admit that. But they were trained killers. And this was probably not their first crucifixion. These guys knew what they were doing. They knew what death on a cross looks like. And so they stabbed the spear. So not only did they you hear all these things that were happening to Jesus on the cross... But here's the thing. There is no written record. There is no historical record of anyone ever surviving crucifixion. No one. Crucifixion killed people, and it killed Jesus. The idea to think that Jesus merely passed out and then somehow miraculously survived came to, in a tomb, and then rolled the 600-pound door out of the way and escaped while the guards were posted there to guard the tomb, strains credulity. As Dr. Methrell says, it's impossible. So why am I spending all this time on Jesus' death? Right? I mean, this is the resurrection is Easter. Isn't this a little morbid? Right? <laughs> but here's the thing. Without death, there can't be a resurrection. If Jesus didn't die, then he wasn't really resurrected. So it's important to see that he died. That he didn't just faint. He died. Okay. So with the death established, the thing is, lots of Jewish people, unfortunately, lots of them died. Thousands of them died in the first century. Many of them were crucified. The Romans would crucify escaped slaves and rebels, and there were lots of rebels in Israel. The thing is, we need an empty tomb. We need to see that Jesus actually rose again. Because without an empty tomb, then Christianity is a hoax. 
Like it said, uh, like Lee Strobel said, it's a house of cards that all comes fa- uh, falling down. Okay, so first thing we need to do then is if there's an empty tomb, we need to take a look at this tomb and how were tombs constructed? <clears throat> this is the first century cho- a tomb or a replica of it. First of all, you can see that it's a tomb is dug into the side of a hill. That's how they did it. And because you can see they have to chip their way into rock, they're very efficient with the size. Tombs are not spacious places. And that door, they estimate, is about three feet big, or three feet tall. Just enough to barely get a body in. Okay? And that's important. The other thing, too, is they have this large stone disc. Four, five, six hundred pounds. Okay, and it's built on an incline with a notch right about here. So what you do is you have a group, a team of men, who knows how much tackle and pulleys, to move it up its incline, and then they put a rock underneath it to chalk it in place so it can't roll. Then to close the tomb, you simply move the rock, the stone rolls into place, locks into its notch, and seals the tomb. It's a great way, one, to have something to do with bodies when they die. Not only that, but it helps with the smell. But more importantly than that, it keeps grave robbers out. It's secure. So this tomb is, is secure. But it's also, too, when you start thinking about the fact, like the swoon theory that we talked about, maybe Jesus passed out, can you imagine how difficult it would be? I mean, he's, he's nearly dead, if you want to say that, or somehow miraculously survived across it. He would somehow stand at a three-foot-tall opening and roll that giant stone out by himself. No mere man could do that while there were guards stationed outside and simply slip away. That, to me, is the miraculous. <laughs> that, to me, would be a, a very, that one strays credulity. So, we have Jesus. He's really dead. And we have the fact that the tomb was secure. Okay. So, now we're going to start moving a little bit faster here. So, the angel comes. And this is in verse 2. He says, and he opens the door. Or sorry, he comes in lightning and thunder. And he sits on top of the stone. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, wait, Jason, come on, angel? I mean, that's not how the natural world normally works. I just ask you to bear with me here, because if our issue is with angels, there's all sorts of amazing and miraculous things happening here. So I would say that's, let's put that on the side. That's the least of our concerns, whether angels exist or not. So this angel comes and he says, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Twice in Matthew's gospel, he was speaking to his disciples. He said that he was going to rise again. Here, Jesus does it. Okay, but then here's the thing. The angel says to the women, he says, come and see the place where he lay. And I was thinking about this. This shows us that the angel's not trying to hide something. He's not, just, he's not trying to pull the wool over their eyes. He says, ladies, come here, look at this place. Come see for yourselves. Look, this is where he was laying. There's not a conspiracy here. The angel says, come, ladies, check it out. But here's the thing. That come, I hear it speaking to the ladies in the story, but through the text, I also hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Come, bring your questions. Bring your questions and look. Now, obviously, we can't go and look at the place where he lay, but we can look at the evidence 
the testimonies given in Scripture, the testimony given outside of Scripture from other historians who talk about Jesus. Come and look. Come and see. So, I told you we'd move a little faster. Verse 9 now, it says, The women rushed from the tomb. Oh, sorry. Um, one detail. So, like I said, the Gospels, if you're going to go home and read this, and hopefully you will, is you'll go home and you'll read Matthew, and you'll start reading Mark, and you'll start reading Luke, and you'll start reading John, and you'll say, Aha, Jason, I found the spot. <laughs> because Matthew says it happened this way, and Mark's is a little bit different, and Luke's is a little bit different still, and John's a bit different even more. So how can, if the, all these stories are different, how can it be true? Well, I would say if we were doing algebra, that line of thinking works, right? If the answers are different, then there must be something wrong. That works in math. But ancient history is different. You talk to any ancient historian, and they would say that, of course, we have discrepancies. Different accounts come with different angles. I mean, think about this. Even today, in a modern-day detective, if everybody's story is exactly the same, they start wondering, okay, how did they do that? Did they meet beforehand to get their story straight? If everything is exactly the same, that sounds more like someone is making it up than if there are differences from different witnesses, different accounts. And the thing is, when you think about it, the essential elements of the story are all here. They all say that Jesus died on a cross. They all say that Joseph of Arimathea took the body and put it in a tomb. They also say that Mary Magdalene came with a group of women, came to the cross, or sorry, came to the tomb. They say an angel was there and announced that Jesus was not here, that he is risen. So rather than looking at the differences of the four Gospels as somehow the story's not true, because believe me, I used to think that, is that rather... These are multiple accounts, different testimonies. And it's something like a jewel. When you turn it one way, you see one aspect of the truth. And then you turn it again, the light refracts differently, and you see another aspect of the truth. Even this morning, I relied on Mark and Luke to help explain why the women were there at all. Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark and Luke do. Now there you can say, oh, well, that's a difference, and uh, so they must all be uh, false. I would actually say that actually the three of them together give us a better picture of what was happening. The thing is, the early church knew this. The church, when they gathered these writings together, these gospels, they knew that there were slight differences. They could have easily said, you know what, we're going to pick one because that's, uh, that's more um, believable. But they didn't. They went with all four because all four give unique view add additional information of what was happening here. Okay, so the women, they come to the tomb, and now they're rushing away. The angel has told them to go and tell the disciples, <clears throat> and that's where Jesus meets them. Here's the thing. They fall on the ground, and they begin worshiping him. Now, this is a big deal, because these are faithful Jewish women. Uh, in that time, Judaism was just part of the culture. If you lived in Israel, you were Jewish. Okay? And they were fiercely monotheistic. That means they fiercely believed in one God, only one God. And so for them to worship anyone but that one God, whether it was a person, an idol, anything, would have been blasphemy. They would have never done it themselves, and they knew if they had, they'd be put to death. And so they're here, worshiping Jesus. 
It gives us a clue that he is more than just a man. That as far as they could say, as far as they could see, he was actually God. They know God when they see him. But here's the other thing. The women, it says in the Greek text, it says they actually grabbed his feet. Now that seems like a minor detail, right? But here's the thing. Jesus had a body. Jesus didn't appear to them as a force or a light or a sense or a vision or a dream. Jesus appeared to them in a body, a resurrected body. And that's important. That's important. That shows us that Jesus actually rose again. Okay. So the women see his feet, Sorry, they grab his feet and they worship him. Here's the thing. The guards, they respond differently. These Roman guards who are watching him in verse 15 to 11, when the angel came, it said that they they shook and passed out or as like they were dead. These soldiers are supposed to be soldiers of shock and awe. And it turns out they shake and faint. (laughs) And so when they faint, they go back to religious leaders and they say, uh, they tell them, I report everything that had happened. And the religious leaders gather a bunch of silver and tell them, here's a story you tell people. You tell them that the disciples came while you were asleep and took the body. Okay, so to get into it, whether Matthew's right or the Jewish leaders were right, it's not going to really help. It's essentially, he said, uh, his version versus their version. But here's the one thing we can draw from this. They're not arguing whether or not the body was gone. They're arguing how it left or why it was gone. Because let's think about this. And this is actually I learned from from Lee Strobel's book as well. He said, if there was still a body, the Jewish leaders, uh, when the disciples said, he is risen, the Jewish leaders would have simply said, come on guys, no he's not. He's at the top of the hill, third tomb from the left. You can go check the body yourself. We all know. But they don't say that. The Jewish leaders didn't say that. In fact, actually, the the argument went like this. He is risen. No, he's not. You stole him. No, he didn't. You paid the guards. So we can't go back to the moment and sort it out between Matthew and the religious leaders. But here's the one place where they agree they all agree that there was no body in the tomb. The tomb is empty. That's what they all agree on. They're just arguing about why. Do you see the difference? Okay. So if you're looking for the con, if you're looking for the scandal, the conspiracy, this smells, it like, this smells like it here to me. The Jewish leader is trying to pay off guards to tell a false gospel. And I have to ask, would the disciples really steal the body? You know, I'd have to concede that it's a possibility. You know, maybe they got so excited about what was happening, they just didn't want it to end. Okay, that's, I could understand that. But what I can't understand is why would these disciples then die for a lie? History says that these disciples were killed, they were executed, they were martyred, because they would not recant, because they would not say or disagree with Jesus, because they would not say that he did not rise. 
They continued to be faithful to what they had seen. They continued to tell the truth that Jesus rose again. Even though it cost them their lives. Even though they were killed for it. And the idea that people would die for a lie strains credulity. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, lastly. These disciples. They see Jesus. They go to Galilee to meet him there. They obey, which is surprising because these guys had deserted Jesus. When he was arrested, the disciples were gone. <laughs> they abandoned him. They dropped him like a hot rock. And yet they find, they, they come to Galilee to, to meet him. And again, they see Jesus. They didn't experience a force it wasn't a dream or a hallucination or a vision. They see Jesus, resurrected body, there in front of them. And they too worship him. Again, faithful, monotheistic Jews worshiping Jesus. But here's the thing. It says they worship and they doubt, which is honest. That's surprising. And it's surprisingly honest. Think about this. First of all, it's surprising because Jesus died and rose again. If I had seen Jesus risen, I don't know, maybe I make too much of it, but I think I'd just be amazed and overwhelmed and so happy. I don't know if that would really fit into it. I mean, he's right there in front of me. I could touch him. I could eat a meal with him, as it talks about in, in John's gospel. How could you doubt so it's, one, it's, it's surprising. But the next thing is that it's surprisingly honest. Because Matthew, who wrote this gospel, was actually one of those 11 men in the room with Jesus. He has this chance right here to make himself and the rest of the disciples look really good because they had just blown it. They had abandoned Jesus, and he says, he could have written this in a way that we see them as heroes now. He could have written why they abandoned, how they were trying to further the mission by not crowding Jesus. Or they could have said how they had this amazing moment of faith and went out into all the world and, and converted all these people to faith. But he tells the honest truth, the slightly embarrassing truth, that even still they doubted. But he speaks honestly. They see Jesus and they doubt. If you're here this morning and you too are trying to work out faith in doubt, you're in the right place. If you have more questions than answers, you are in the right place. I just came across this, this quote. It said, Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is following Jesus despite your doubt. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. And I can see maybe a little too much ground. <laughs> but I hope that you're seeing how credible this is, that Jesus actually did die and rise again. That given the data, the testimonies that we have, the simplest answer is usually the best, that Jesus died and rose again. The question is, can we bet our lives on it? See, when I was younger, and I used to do a bit of rock climbing, that's a carabiner. That's the thing that anchors you to the rock. But when I mean younger, I don't mean this young. I mean more when I was in my 20s. Um, I did some rock climbing. The thing is, when you rock climb, 
There's two types of climbing. There's top rope climbing, which if you fall, it's about 20, 25 inches that you fall. It's short. Then there's lead climbing, where you clip into the rock and you climb above the anchor. See, the thing is, if you climb five feet above the anchor, you fall the five feet you're above, and then the rope goes slack, and then you fall five feet below, and then you stretch the rope. So 15, 10, 15 feet. If you climb 10 feet above the anchor, which is typical, when you fall, you fall 10 feet, the rope goes slack, you fall another 10 feet, and then the rope begins to stretch to arrest your fall. So you're talking 20 to 25 feet of free fall. So the anchor is extremely important. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection is the anchor point for all of Christianity. It's like this carabiner. It's like this piece of webbing or this piece of strap right here. Everything hangs off the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And I hope, like many people, like many of you here, that you have more experiences, more places that anchor you in the rock. Maybe something like you've been healed. You've been set free. Or maybe you've experienced God's love in a profound way that you can't deny. Or maybe you can look back over your life and how you began following Jesus and you can see a a point where your life changed and began to look different because of faith in Jesus. And it's like this. This is one of those anchors in the rock. And you can see here around his belt, he has numerous other anchors. Okay, I'm hopeful that as you live life, you're able to put in more anchors. But ultimately, we come back to this one. The death and resurrection of Jesus. This will last, this will sustain us when we have questions about everything else. This morning, we come to the big question. Did Jesus really die and rise again? And if he did, can I bet my life on it? Like I said in the mor- this morning in the beginning, some of you have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. I hope, uh, one, that you give thanks to God for that. And I know that there are things you've heard this morning that will encourage you and that will, you'll be able then to help others who maybe have questions. Some of you are new to faith. And hopefully you're seeing that you can follow Jesus and you don't have to check your brain at the door. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, it's not just blind faith. You're not crazy for believing that. Some of you are here this morning and you're barely hanging on. You're wondering if this whole Christianity thing is really right for you. I want to tell you, I've been at that place myself. Life was horrible. Things were going wrong. I remember asking, do I really believe all this? And it came back to this truth, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That didn't change. Regardless of what was going on in my life, that fact remained the same. And I continued to follow him. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you have still more questions than answers, but I hope you see this morning that following Jesus is true. It comes by faith, but it's not blind faith. Imagine for a moment if we all, everybody in this room, bet our life on this truth that Jesus died and rose again. Imagine the meaning it would be in our life. Imagine the meaning it would be to be a part of God's kingdom. Imagine the healing it would do in us, not just physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, social healing, healing our past, healing our future. Imagine just for a moment, if we bet our lives that Jesus died and rose again, how we would belong, belong to God's people, to this church family here. Imagine if we bet our lives that Jesus died and rose again, that we could receive forgiveness, 
that we would receive grace. This morning, I have good news for you. Jesus did die, but he also rose again. And that changes everything. Over the next few weeks, this month of April, we're going to be working through how this changes everything. Begin next week by how Jesus heals. So look in your bulletin, there's more information about it. But now, let me pray for you.